Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. The scene is familiar to all of us. As the lush orchestral chords of a much-loved theme begin to play, the camera sweeps up a long, curving drive over green countryside, and then, just beyond a group of trees, it appears. Large, sprawling, often with towers and stunning carvings on the facade, the camera takes us up to the very entrance. Somehow, as if by magic, those grand doors open, and we are there, inside an English country house. For so many of us, that's how many of our favorite period films and television dramas begin. Sometimes the house itself plays a role in the drama that we're about to see, but more often these grand estates and country houses serve as stage sets for the drama, romance, and occasionally tragedy that play out within their walls. To celebrate the opening of a new Downton Abbey feature film coming out in May, I'm focusing on the world of the great English country house, and we are about to examine a very particular aspect of these grand homes, the interiors and the family collections of objects of art that they held and even still hold today. And with me, I have a very special guest, Nick Dawes, a master appraiser and who will certainly be familiar to many listeners from his appearances on Antiques Roadshow. Nick is an absolute expert on our subject today, so I invite you to pour a nice cup of tea, like me. And there is really no better episode with which to enjoy your cup of tea. And walk with me through those ancient carved doors into the very center of the English country house. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Every two weeks, I take you, my listeners, under the velvet ropes and behind the glitter and the gold to look a bit more closely at the social worlds of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian periods. This winter and spring, we've spent a great deal of time focusing on the Gilded Age of New York, but again, to celebrate the release of a new film, taking us back into the worlds of the fictional Crawley family and into the halls of the fictional Downton Abbey, I'm virtually heading across the pond to spend a little time in England. Julian Fellowes' beloved drama Downton Abbey is certainly not the first period series to make us fall in love with one of the great English country estates. 
Great houses such as Chatsworth, home to the Dukes of Devonshire, appeared in the 2005 film adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. And it's even said that Chatsworth itself was Jane Austen's actual model as she created the fictional Pemberley. But for me, my image of Pemberley will probably always be Lime Park, a stately home in Cheshire, featured in the brilliant 1995 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that starred Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely. But of all the great ancestral homes of Britain's aristocracy, no two have perhaps become as familiar to us as Castle Howard in Yorkshire, which has become the model in many of our minds for the great Brideshead. And of course, the real-life model for Downton Abbey, High Clear Castle in Hampshire, about 45 miles west of London. And it does quite well playing its role as a fictional great Yorkshire house. When you look at an English country house, it's often so easy to see the past. And by that, I mean the layers of the past. So many of these great homes were begun as fortified piles demolished and rebuilt or simply added onto as changing architectural styles and construction simply overtook original foundations. Lime Park, for example, began in the 14th century and has elements of the Elizabethan as well as the Palladian and the Baroque in its construction. Castle Howard, with its slightly confusing name, was actually built on the site of a former fortified castle with the construction that we see today beginning at the very start of the 18th century. And Highclere, originally the site of a bishop's palace, transformed from a mansion house with origins dating to the 17th century before a major renovation and redesign in the early 19th century gave us the Jacobean revival architectural style that we see today. A grand country house had to have a grand park, often landscaped by designers such as the great Capability Brown in Highclere's case, and they were dotted with follies, temples and pavilions created to evoke a sense of the long distant past. The park, of course, is part of an even larger estate by which the house earned income and remained self-sufficient. The house and the park must always align in perfect balance to each other. Vita Sackville-West, the great Bloomsbury writer in her 1941 monograph on the English country house, says... Irrespective of grandeur or modesty, it should agree with its landscape and suggest the life of its inhabitants, past or present, and never overwhelm its surroundings. And in each of these cases, like many more, the great country house was the seat of the same families in residence in one form or another for centuries. And while families were in residence, whether bringing back treasures from conquests or collecting just for practical purposes or decoration, it's the interior objects that define these families, reflected their eccentricities and personalities, and in the end, decorated their homes. All of this is where we begin today, and some of what they had may surprise you. To help us better understand the world of the English country house and its interior world of decorative arts found inside these grand homes is my guest today, Nick Dawes, whom I'm honored to welcome to The Gilded Gentleman. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Nick Dawes is Senior Vice President of Special Collections for Heritage Auctions in New York and has worked previously at Sotheby's and Phillips as a specialist and auctioneer and spent two decades as an antiques dealer. Listeners will certainly know Nick from his regular appearances as expert appraiser on Antiques Roadshow for PBS, which he's been a part of since its very first season. Nick is an accomplished author with four published books on decorative arts and is considered the country's leading expert on the work of René Lalique. Nick has been a faculty member at Parsons School of Design since 1985 and lectures widely and frequently. He is chairman of the board of the Salma Gundy Club one of the country's oldest arts clubs. Nick, it is a complete pleasure to have you join me today for The Gilded Gentleman. I don't think really there's much in the world or in the world of decorative arts that has escaped your eye or expertise. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here with you, Carl. Carl and I are old friends and what a pleasure and what a great place to be. So, Nick, you are the chairman of the board of the Selma Gundy Club, and here we are at the Selma Gundy Club, in fact, in the library. I've returned to this incredible space where I've recorded a couple of shows. Nick, what can you share with us about the club or about this particular space? I'm just going to say, if you're anywhere near here, come and visit. We are sitting in what must be the best preserved period reference library put together by our members in 1917 and we've tried to make it look as much uh, as close as possible to what it did then Uh, it's an extraordinary room a fabulous place a place of quietude and a place of learning and i tell people it smells of knowledge in here Oh, and it does. And the club was founded 150 years ago. It just had its anniversary last year. Yes, 1871. That's correct. We are the oldest artist club in New York, founded 1871. We're in a building that was built before then. It was built in 1854, the oldest house on Fifth Avenue here between 11th and 12th on Fifth Avenue. Uh, We bought this building, Salma Gundians bought it in 1917. So we've been here over a century now. 
And I think we couldn't be in a more appropriate place, which feels and looks of the past, to be able to dive in a little bit to our subject of English country houses today. Does that sound right, Nick? It really does. <laughs> I mean, we, we are in something of a legacy of the Gilded Age here. There are very few buildings of this period left in New York City, certainly not looking like they did at the time. So I agree it's very appropriate. One of the things that I've always loved about the club and of being here is you can smell the the past and see the past and really feel it here too. So how appropriate. So let's so Nick, let's just dive in here. Before we get specific at looking at the insides of the grand English country house, I think it's really important to get into perspective just how these incredibly grand worlds came to be. And it's it's really a story, you and I've chatted about this. It's really a story of town and country, right? I mean, when you look at an estate like the fictional Downton or even the real High Clare, can you really lead us through how all that happened? Well, it's a very long story, really. I mean, if you take a place like Highclere or, or Downton Abbey, as we see it on TV, it's a story that goes back a thousand years and sometimes more in the case of some of the English country houses. The families, you know, that inhabit these places are ancient British nobility, many of them going back that far. And they achieve their status in society through all sorts of ways, including battle. You know, the, these are the knights of old who have grown up. It is very much a town and country story, but it was all country until what you might say the Industrial Revolution changed things by certainly by the end of the 18th century. But up until then, your wealth in Britain and beyond was largely measured by your land ownership. You owned vast tracts of land, with the country house being the center of it all. And effectively, owing to feudalism, you kind of owned the people who lived on it. So they brought you all the treasures of the English countryside. You would live richly off the, you know, the, the meat and cheese and the fruit and the vegetables and everything that the estate could produce. By the middle, and certainly by the end of the 18th century, maritime trading had become the essence of wealth throughout much of Northern Europe, particularly for the English. And by that time, you needed an extra wing to your house, not a physical wing, but you needed something in London. You needed a townhouse. You needed to be able to go to London and converse with your financiers and, and your bankers and, and all of the contacts you would have established, you had to have established in business. So town and country really starts by the late 18th century, is immensely important by the English Regency period through the early 19th century. This is when the great squares of London were built and, and a few other cities, um, but primarily London. But the country house by this point remained important, of course, for your wealth, but gradually receded into a, a kind of leisure establishment in much the same way that today most wealthy people live and, and make their living primarily within cities. They are bourgeois, whereas their country place is a place of relaxation. And that's pretty much the story of the fictitious Crawley family, the Earl of Grantham and his family. Yes, when we meet them in 1912, they have the townhouse in London, but they really spend, it seems, most of their time at Downton in the, in the country. I would say that's very, that's very accurate. Certainly before the First World War, they, they spend much of their time and they seem to do little more than relax at Downton. 
So let's go through those doors. And as the camera angle often follows a character going through the doors into the Great Hall. So when we look at the world of, of Downton Abbey or the real High Clare, how would a family, a fictional family such as the Crawleys, have amassed that collection that we see from room to room? Well, that's a good question. And it wasn't just them. All of the families tended to have comparable collections, some better than others. Their collections, of course, were, uh, in terms of decorative arts, were practical. You need furniture and furnishings. You don't necessarily need paintings. You certainly don't need every square inch of your wall to be plastered with oil paintings as they were. But collecting them was uh, really a twofold exercise. First of all, it was a way of decorating your magnificent space. You did entertain there a great deal. You wanted to show everyone that you had ancestry, you had a degree of nobility within that ancestry, which is why so many of the paintings represent ancestors and forefathers, and particularly the sort of glorious parts of your past. And a great deal of what would have been acquired, and certainly what you would have seen in Downton, for instance, which is set largely between the two world wars, was acquired much earlier through a period of perhaps uh, strong affluence in those particular families in the 18th century, perhaps, or the early 19th. So you'll see a, a lot of old furnishings in these houses. And the people who lived within them, it was very much part of their culture not to change that. You know, the, the furniture and furnishings that they use may well be 200 years old for the Crawley family. And they just used them. They just used them. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you broke a plate, you, you'd, you'd buy a new one from the old porcelain works. Right, right. Um, but the furnishings, yes, you'd reupholster them every once in a while, but, but much of what they used was uh, from a very different generation. Now, there are certain scenes in certain episodes where we see the, again, fictitious family examining some of their treasures. There's a moment with a Gutenberg Bible and some old master paintings and and even some, some other objects. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that we see them looking at and how they may have acquired those? I think it's fair to say that the general perception, particularly of the viewer, watching a movie or a TV series about the great English country houses, whether it's it's Downton or, or Brideshead, or we may have seen earlier. You tend to look on these things and say, wow, these people are surrounded by, you know, treasures that must be of enormous value. And the fact is that relatively few things within the typical English country house do have extraordinary value. Now, you've pointed out that the Crawley family fictitiously, owned a Gutenberg Bible. It would certainly have been the single most valuable object in the house. It would be far more valuable than any of the individual paintings or objects that sculpture or whatever in the house itself, even in its day, and a very, very rare thing. But it is the kind of thing that a family of that status could potentially have owned. They would certainly have owned old master paintings, paintings from the Renaissance or the Baroque period, which they may have acquired back in the 18th century. There's a storyline, I believe, from Downton when an ancestor acquired such a painting in the 1780s, a young man doing what we call the Grand Tour. And of course, all of these people would have done the Grand Tour as young men as, as part of their 
they're finishing education. And it was very common to bring back something from the ancient world, either a painting or a piece of sculpture or a, a relic, a, a souvenir of some sort. So these things accumulated within the country houses. Some families went overboard with that and started collecting them in a big way. It was considered a very sort of noble and, and highly civilized things to do, to collect relics of the ancient world of one form or another. But but the fact is that largely because of this, because much of the collecting habits would have effectively ended a hundred years before shows like Downton are being filmed, there is actually very little in the house that can be considered modern. And as we probably know from following the art market, it's modern objects that represent the monetary value these days. Well, that's such a fascinating aspect, which I think I certainly didn't think about, and I'm sure many listeners didn't either. When you look through the house, yes, there's that stunning Van Dyke portrait, which is real in the in the dining room. But when we meet the Crawley family, in this case, it's 1912, and we follow them through the war, and in, now we're into the 1920s with the new movie. Absolutely the era of modernism, but there's none of that anywhere, right? And that would have been the high ticket value. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And in many respects, what we see in Downton and in Brideshead for that matter, is the gradual, in fact, rather rapid decline of these families financially, culturally, in their social standing. Economically, they lose a great deal. And they find that they have very little to support that with. Now, the contents of the houses have often been sold. There have been several notable English country house sales over the last two or three decades. Particularly, this was common in the 80s when British tax laws made it very favorable to sell the contents of your house. But a lot of families had no choice. And <clears throat> we did find old master paintings, Van Dykes and others, and 18th century furniture and 18th century trappings of a house, silver and so on, and porcelain, all being sold. And very rarely did anything sell above six figures. It was very unlikely to find something selling for over a million dollars. Now, had the Crawleys in 1912 or before, and they could certainly have afforded it, and they had the connections, had they bought, let's say, a couple of Picassos, or a couple of Monets, or, or Gustav Klimt, for that matter, that one painting alone could have been worth a great deal more than every other thing in Downton Abbey by the time that they needed it in the 20s. There's a wonderful scene where, where Carson is uh, very concerned about the radio and the record player arriving. He, he really is ob objecting to them. The, the staff object to anything mechanical in the kitchen, but anything modern is rejected. The, the only member, really, of the family who embraced modernism was Lady Sybil. Uh, and look what happened to her. She was there. She enjoyed the Parisian fashion scene. She loved Paul Poiret and wanted to be fashion forward. But it didn't work for her. She, she, she was basically made fun of. And, and, and that element of society was not allowed through the doors of Dante. Before the success of Downton Abbey, Highclere Castle and, and really the 
Carnarvon family were were famous for another aspect, and it was the fifth Earl, George Herbert, who was a famous amateur Egyptologist and most famously funded the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922. Nick, can you share a little bit about that collection as he he acquired it and and really the role of ancient artifacts and the ancient world in in this whole notion of collecting yeah that's a fascinating story um the the real danton highclere is is home to one of the finest collections of ancient egyptian artifacts in europe specifically howard carter who he patronized carter was the archaeologist who discovered the tomb of tutankhamun 1922 and it was like discovering a lost world, you know. Ancient Egypt in general had been largely unexcavated until Napoleon and his Grand Army went there around 1800. And it wasn't until the later 19th century that ancient Egypt was really fully understood in and distributed in terms of photographs and so on but a great deal of it still was still left unexplored and undiscovered in fact a great deal of it probably is still undiscovered but the greatest discovery of all time was Tutankhamun's tomb in the valley of the kings in 1922 it was an entirely untouched royal tomb and we know the impact that it still has on you know in any great museum You'll see references to it. But in the early 20s, uh, Egyptomania just swept Europe and everyone got caught up in it. And you see it uh, influencing the contemporary Art Deco taste in all sorts of ways. As I said earlier, it was considered a a kind of noble and and respectable thing to do to collect artifacts from the ancient world. Mostly the, the, the nobility looked to ancient Greece or perhaps ancient Rome, but Greece was the culture of choice. Egypt was a little bit off-topic, you know, a little bit odd, but the fifth earl fell in love with it, sponsored Carter, and he was able, through that sponsorship, to bring back enormous quantities of ancient Egyptian artefacts, which are still, many of them, on view at Highclere Castle. it's It's a remarkable thing and a great legacy of the English nobility and their collecting habits. Now, Nick, you have had some really truly unique experience to spend some time actually with members of the cast and the creative team of Downton Abbey. I just have to ask, based on that time and those conversations, is there anything you can share with listeners that you heard or learned or what it was like? I have been lucky, and on a couple of occasions I've met members of the cast and people responsible for production and so on, and I feel as if I've I've got a better insight to it through that. Yeah, there's lots of stories. One of my favorite stories, I became friends with the actor who plays Mr. Molesley, and we were talking about the sort of logistics of production because what you may not know is some of the show is taped at Downton Abbey, if you like, at Highclere. And some of it is taped, most of the downstairs sort of servant scenes in a studio in London. So he told me that part of the problem with logistics, and he put it very well, he said, you you know, you, you walk out of the kitchen carrying a tray of hot food, and then you walk into the dining room with the kitchen two weeks later in 200 miles away. <laughs> so, <laughs> is the food still hot? I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine the logistics of taping 
at an English country house. Uh, and gradually, I think, more and more of the show became taped at uh, in-studio. Well, because when you, I'm assuming, create a set, you can map it out logistically to make sure your actors have space to move, whereas when you're dealing with a, an actual country house, space can be a little bit of a challenge, I would imagine. Well, yeah, although the, I, I, I've always said that the, the most important cast member of the show, and for that matter, the most important cast member of Brideshead Revisited, is the house. And the house appears everywhere. It's there at the beginning and the end. Of the, it's, and just that view, those spectacular views of the exterior of James Barry's magnificent piece of architecture from the early Victorian years, that says it all. Uh, well, you, you know, they've got you at that. So I want to leave Downton Abbey for just a moment, the fictional Downton, and actually go up north to Yorkshire. And of course, Downton is is supposed to be set in, in Yorkshire, and it is not. But we're really going to Yorkshire, to one of my very favorite country houses. I'm sure it will be true of many listeners as well. And that is Castle Howard. It's a stunning country house that's appeared in a number of films and and television shows, and I think it is pretty much everyone's idea of Brideshead, at least at this point. Nick, can you share any insight or any perspective on Castle Howard with us? Yes, indeed. Thank you, Carl. Uh, Brideshead, of course, was a favorite of mine. And for many people of a certain generation, it was their first introduction to life and culture of an English country house and an English noble family. There was a great deal there, of course. Brideshead is from an Evelyn War novel and beautifully dramatized on television and film. And it's one of my favorite places. I was there actually not long ago. And I've been visiting English country houses for a long time. I grew up in England. And in those days when I was a boy, you would go occasionally to an English country house, a local one typically for a Sunday afternoon. They were open uh, on certain occasions. But the experience was very, very different than it is today. You almost felt like an intruder. I mean, you were if effectively an unwelcome guest. It was an obligation, a kind of noblesse oblige for many of the families to invite members of the public in. But there was very little in, in the way of guided tours. You, you, you had very little opportunity to learn. If you knew about the stuff, you could go and look at it and, and, and benefit from that. But you had limited opportunity Today it's very different. The majority of English country houses that are open to the public offer a wide-ranging experience and an extraordinary opportunity to, to learn about the architecture, the culture, the history, the decorative arts within them and the paintings and everything else. And Castle Howard is, is superb among all of them. But what I especially love about it, apart from the interiors, which are extremely well-preserved and, and include some landmark pieces of English furniture and objects, what I love about Castle Howard is that it is a living place. In many respects, much of what it did, how it operated in the 18th century, let's say, has been revived. You know, If you want to eat well in Yorkshire, you go to the shop at Castle Howard. Uh, yes, you can buy the traditional sort of souvenirs you get from an English country house visit, but almost everything they sell is homegrown local stuff, the kind of stuff that the family would have enjoyed from the local people for centuries. Fantastic cheeses and meats and homemade jams and anything you could wish for in terms of the best English food and drink, it's all there. And why not? That's the way it should be. These places were designed to be 
agricultural establishments at one level. The immediate surrounding areas where you kind of hunt and picnic and hang out and enjoy the view. But the agriculture of Castlehad is, is its outstanding element today, I think. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's it's similar at Chatsworth, too. I believe there's a, a shop where you can buy meat and, and local produce as, as well. Chatsworth is, I would say, even better. Ah. Chatsworth is probably the most outstanding. We have our list now. Of them all, <laughs> yes, yes. Go there, too. Nick, do you have a favorite country house? And this could be something that's famous or not famous, or is there one of the houses that just holds a special place for you? It depends what you call a country house. We think of Chatsworth. We think of the ones that we're mentioning today. These magnificent places. Blenheim Palace is a great one, too. But in my heart, my favorite English country house, and it's a stretch to call it that, but we really can, is a place called Boscobel House in Shropshire. I grew up very near there, and Boscobel House... It's it's an, an earlier house. It's it's Elizabethan period, but just an extraordinary place. It's full of English history, full of 17th century English history, and and all of the trappings that go with it. It's the house of uh, there's a society here called the Royal Oak Society, which you know well. Uh, the Royal Oak itself is at Boscobel House. And I'll leave you to find out more of that story. Well, I think we'll put all of that on on our list. So as we wind down here, I want to ask you one final question here. You are one of the most well-known appraisers on Antiques Roadshow, uh, a television program that we all so love. And I noted that in the introduction, and you've been on the show since since its beginning, so you've really seen so much. You had mentioned at one point that, I guess starting in the 80s, that objects from English country houses could be sold and could end up here. Can you share with our listeners some of the things that you've found through the show or discoveries that you've made or little bits of those worlds that maybe you still can find here? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. And in my life here over the last 40-something years as an antiques dealer and auctioneer, I've seen an enormous amount of stuff, including what you see on coming across the tables at Antiques Roadshow. And it's not just since the 80s. The, the English country house has been divested of its contents for well over a century now. The great dealers, Joseph Duveen, started pillaging the country houses in as early as 1900 and selling mostly paintings but some furnishings to the American wealthy. So you can look in places like the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., and see objects that started their life in an English country house and have, in some cases, royal provenance. And here they are for all of us to see. But on a more humble level, things have been sold over throughout the 20th century, and many of them have been sold here. The, the antiques trade in England saw America as the primary consumer source in many respects. So a great deal of stuff came here over the years. I like to look for English silver, English porcelain, perhaps even English glass, which has some kind of aristocratic provenance. And you can see that because it's engraved with perhaps the crest of a nobleman of some sort. These are not difficult to find. 18th century, mostly Georgian period, which is a period of over 100 years, silver and objects turns up all the time in large and small auctions in North America and in large and small antique shops. So you can own a piece of English aristocratic heritage 
represented by the crest, which of course you can have fun looking up and, and figuring out who it was relatively inexpensively. Uh, and we see it all the time coming into Roadshow and, and people, when you say, oh, that's the crest of a baronet on your knife and fork there. Oh, really? You know, and here it is in Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, they don't know. Oh, you can just say, that's, oh, that's my family, I guess, <laughs> yes. Nick, it has been such a pleasure to have you on uh, The Gilded Gentleman today. I, you have absolutely given us all new eyes, not only to start looking for silver and porcelain at our uh, local antique dealers, but also when we see these stunning television and film programs that feature English country houses, you've given us the eyes to look at them uh, much more carefully. And I am so grateful you're here today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Carl, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the club a lot more. Absolutely, and we'll just have to find another show to do together. I'm sure that would really be pretty easy. I hope you'll come back at one point. Thank you, Nick, so much. Thank you. And thank you to my listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode and any others, please leave your calling card by writing a review and spreading the word about the show. And I invite you to join the show as a patron on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support truly allows me to continue to produce the show, and you'll have access to bonus content available only for patrons. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media. Join me in two weeks for another look beneath the glitter and the gold. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.